Sauce. This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this is episode 16, Crisis Needs Artists. So yeah, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about and make a case for um, artists on the front lines of crisis. And I feel like just saying that statement, um, you know, it's a little radical to say, or a lot radical to say. <laughs> um, we don't think of artists on the front lines of anything, first of all, <laughs> unless maybe they're doing something that's overtly um you know, social justice related or activism related. Um, but when you're talking about the majority of, of art making, it isn't considered, you know, uh, not, I don't know if relevance is the right word. That's the word that just popped up immediately. Sometimes I wonder if the culture views art as irrelevant in times of crisis. And I wonder if artists... <laughs> view um, their work as irrelevant in times of crisis. I know that they do. I have struggled with this. Um, I want to tell some stories that have helped me navigate that and have sort of taken me through this journey that has led me to feel strongly that artists not only matter, but are impar- their work is imperative. It is so crucial in times of crisis, and I want to talk a little bit about why. Before I do, if you are enjoying this podcast, thank you. Thank you, thank you for listening. Um, I do such little marketing of this podcast. We're slowly going to start doing some things to expand the reach of Secret Sauce. Um, but in the meantime, it's really just Instagram, once a week and that's about it and the feedback has been tremendous and it's caused me to continue doing this secret sauce was born out of the quarantine and as we move into um, a more traditional workload again we have created a patreon account which some people have been subscribing to thank you Um, the patreon is going to be one way that we're able to continue recording the podcasts, um, investing time and energy into the podcasts. And so even if you are contributing a dollar a month, it is going to be huge. I can't, I can't overstate that. That's, it's going to be huge. Um, if you enjoy the podcast and you feel called to support it in a monetary way, we're going to be, um, we're gearing up here to be sending small product thank yous to, to the patrons as well as early bird um, episode releases. So the the episode 15 is actually getting, uh, was, was sent to patrons a week ago. It is getting sent to everybody uh, today. So everything's going to be kind of staggered now. So if you like getting early notification of episodes and hearing them first, that's available as well as eventually... Um, live Q&A sessions with guests. On that note, before we plunge into the episode today, I'm really excited that our second guest is going to be joining Secret Sauce next week. Um, His name is Jordan from Growler Domestics here in Austin. We're recording our session tomorrow and 
it's going to be pretty organic, but I'm really excited to have Jordan on because in a lot of ways, Jordan embodies some of the things that this podcast is really about. And I was realizing it might even be, you know, worth it to just refresh some of the of our mem- of our memories, <laughs> maybe that's not the right way to put it. Um, refresh my memory, you know. Um, we're sixteen episodes in, and I'm back in episode one. I talked about being interesting, and I talked a little bit about one of my favorite stories in regards to this, which is when Trevor Noah was getting ready to open for Dave Chappelle at Radio City Music Hall. And he was super nervous. And he tells this story to Howard Stern on his show. And I'm repeating myself for people that listen to episode one, but the the story is beautiful. It is that he was confessing his nerves to to Dave before the show. And one of the the fears he had was, what am I doing here? What am I doing? I can't hold a candle to Dave Chappelle. Or so he thought in his mind, you know, and there's so many other really great comics. What am I doing here? And and began to share some of those insecurities with Dave. And Chappelle looked at him and said, dude, I know tons of funny motherfuckers. He goes, that's not why you're here. He goes, you're here because you're interesting. And I loved that. Because as an illustrator, um, it really resonates with me. I, I've told this to a lot of people, and every time I say it, it causes people to bristle a little bit, and I'm not totally sure why. Um, maybe it's because it's a little self-deprecating, but I, do, I definitely don't mean it to be. And that's this, that I don't think I'm that terribly great when it comes to the technical craft of drawing. I I know I'm I know that my illustration abilities are absolutely great. I I love my style. It is if I didn't love it I wouldn't put it out there. But there when it comes down to technical skill, there are so many illustrators that blow me out of the water when it comes to technical ability. That that's not what I bring to the table. And I've always focused on that, that for me, what I bring to the table is that my illustration style is very different. And and it can definitely be compared uh, to other illustrators as far as similarities go. But my style is very, very unique. And people have told me that, you know, they'll say, oh, I ran into your work and I immediately knew it was a Borelli. That's important to me. And I feel like we're getting to a place where that is what matters when it comes to putting our work into the arena. Is it really wildly you? And how in the world can we do that in a world that's constantly trying to make us like everyone else? And the pressure is real, y'all. Like I know so many illustrators who, when they're starting off, the, the metric is how can I make money? And when you start from a metric in that place, you will pick a style that is selling. And if you pick a style that's selling, you will be a lot like other people. And that can be um, 
And you know, I, if it sounds like I'm slamming on that, I don't think I necessarily am. I did the same for, as I was exploring my own style, as I was growing up, I dabbled with lots of things that were very popular in order to eventually find my own unique expression. And if anyone's listening to that and they're thinking, oh man, like I do that, cool, (laughs) you're on the path. And that's awesome. But eventually, after dabbling in lots of things that are popular, the goal is to find your secret sauce, the thing that only you can do. And Jordan, circling that back around, did y'all ever think I was going to do it? (laughs) Jordan from Growler Domestics, to me, is so ridiculously himself. And that is why his business is blowing up. And to be fair, his technical ability, his craftsmanship is gorgeous. Like, no slamming on that. Um... And so there you go. Maybe that's why people don't like it when I slam on mine because <laughs> it's not ever cool to do that. But his his workmanship is amazing. But there's tons of furniture builders and designers in Austin with great technical ability. And so I'm excited to bring Jordan to Secret Sauce to talk about some of the X factors, some of the things that he offers that are really different. And I'm going to tell this story about how I met him because how I met him is a huge part of that. It's going to be great. Definitely tune in next week. And if you want to have access to Q&As with people like Jordan in the future, consider subscribing to the Patreon. The link is going to always be in the episode notes as well as on my Instagram bio and website. And also just know that if you can't if you can't support the Patreon, there's plenty of ways to support without your dollars. Thank you to people that leave five-star reviews. Thank you to people that share the podcast with others. It is invaluable to me in getting the word out. All right, artists in crisis, we need them. And I I started thinking about this episode topic because I don't know if y'all have been, if you're on social media, you've probably seen this meme that's floating around right now. It's this Um, diptych sort of frame and in the top half of the diptych is this city on fucking fire (laughs) and then in the bottom half is a picture of Will Ferrell and then the caption is always changed depending on the type of creative person posting it Um, so if it's like a a painter, they're saying, oh, anyone want to buy my paintings (laughs) or whatever? Um, my studio mate, Allie from Stampworthy Goods was laughing about, yeah, does anyone want to buy some (laughs) mud cloth furniture, (laughs) some tiled furniture? And I, and I think that the reason this meme is going viral is because this is a huge thing that creative people think about. What the fuck, what does it matter when our culture is, I mean, it's burning, maybe not literally, but, but figuratively it's burning. There's a pandemic. Everything is totally different. There's no stability. Like the rug has been pulled out. We're all just trying to get our grounding again. It's really challenging to do that. In the midst of this crazy time, the there's this terrible 
atrocious series of deaths in the black community, murders in the black community, let me be clear. And people have had enough. They've had enough. And it explodes. And there's protests. And everyone, everyone is thinking about it. And, and maybe the way that they're thinking about it is widely different from one another, but it is really, it's, I would say, impossible to not be reflecting on the shift in the zeitgeist right now. Everyone's thinking about it. And when things are really in crisis, it's really easy to dog on what you're making. Like for me, especially, for me, when I think about it, I think, oh yeah, my style is super, super whimsical. You know, I, I just recently posted on Instagram that we installed finally after almost a year, it started in September of 2019, um, this collaboration to do a mural with Dell Children's Hospital here in Austin. And the, the mural was designed digitally and installed by a local printer and installer. And it's taken a long time. And I just posted some pictures of it for the first time on the wall. And I was thinking about that, like <sighs> rainbows and clouds and butterflies and all, I mean, does any of that matter when shit's on fire? And I want to make a case for yes, Yes, it matters just as much as the doctors on the front lines of the pandemic. That's really radical to say. So bear with me, because I think I have a case for making here. And maybe I don't. <laughs> maybe you'll, you'll get off this episode and think, no, I don't know what she's talking about. And, and that's cool. It's a chance I'm willing to take, as always, in these episodes take what resonates with you, leave the rest. Story time. Uh, y'all, these are expressions of ideas that may or may not serve you. And so the parts that don't serve you always leave them. Okay. So I want to start off by telling a story that's seemingly unrelated, but as usual, stick with me. We'll loop back around. <laughs> I got on a call the other day with someone that I know in the corporate world here in Austin, and we um, they're my point of contact for doing um, creative workshops, creative um, team building workshops using art. It's a blast. I love working with corporate groups. And while we were chatting, she said to me, "Hey, you know, do you have any recommendations?" for ways that we can give artists tools to come in and teach. Because one of the things that I'm, she was noticing was that artists, working artists, don't tend to, to naturally be great teachers. In fact, this is true not just with artists, this is true with any field, and it drives professional teachers crazy. I don't know if anyone, if anyone can relate to this, but there is an assumption in the world generally that when people are really good at the technical craft of something, that they will be very good at teaching that craft. And that's 100% not true. It's sometimes true, but it's not reliably true. Most of the time, it's actually not, there's not a connection that being really good at, you know, 
sculpture, for example, might doesn't most of the time doesn't equate to being really good at teaching it. But because there is that assumption, a lot of times people that are very good at craft get into positions of teaching and they can cause some damage there. And I don't mean to sound dramatic because the damage is, you know, usually relatively mild, but when someone is vulnerable and new and coming into learning something for the first time, it can be really um, frustrating to learn from a master who doesn't know how to communicate with a beginner. That's the biggest challenge is that there's this massive gap between masters and beginners and knowing how to speak to a beginner takes a whole different muscle, you know? So we were talking about this because, and this is something that I am proud of. I have a master's in education. I was a school teacher for a long time. And I think a lot of my teaching background has helped me figure out a way to work in a way that's meaningful in in soul entrepreneurship and art making. And to me, teachers are come down to planet earth to help save us all from ourselves most of the time not all the time once again um no blanket statements here I know plenty of teachers that shouldn't be in a classroom and are (laughs) but most of the time especially with the state of the profession being what it is with public education specifically people that go into teaching are angels <laughs> and and intelligent, compassionate, ridiculously multifaceted human beings. Like people that excel not just at intellectual intelligence, but at interpersonal intelligence. And that one-two punch of intelligence is rare. And it's really frustrating to me, and I think a lot of people that work in education, that there's so many wildly talented people who are paid so little. (laughs) Because being really good at the technical craft of something and also being really, really talented with humans and sharing that technical craft, that's a really rare combination of personality traits, in my opinion. And we were talking about that and I was sharing some things that I thought might be helpful for artists coming in and teaching for the first time. And as we were chatting, I shared with her something that I'd never put into words before. Um, and, and she, and she was nodding over our zoom call. She's like, yeah, this, this is, this is very true. And what I said was this, I said, when you're teaching people for the first time, especially, right? So like when you're teaching students that have never interacted with your craft before, it's like the very first time they're super beginners, like 99% of the value that you're bringing to them is not your knowledge of the craft. And that can be really hard for people to hear that are really passionate about something, right? Like when you're passionate about, for me, it's drawing and you know, so it's it, it's intuitive to think, you know, these people are here to know everything I know about drawing. And what I've learned over almost 15 years of teaching every age imaginable now is that that's not what beginners or maybe arguably any student mostly is looking for. And 
this idea is embedded in the way that humans learn. There's boatloads of research on how humans are wired to learn. Um, It's fascinating. If you want, you can, one of my favorite um, bodies of research is you can easily access through this TED talk on the hole in the wall experiments. And it is escaping me now the name of the researcher. He was from India. He went, I, I believe he ended up teaching at Oxford. And so the research he did was through that university. But he went to, um, I want to say back to his home in India. I'm not sure. But he went to some slums in India. He installed computers. This was a while ago now. Into wall, into holes in the walls in, in slums in India. But they were really low to the ground. So they really only attracted little children because they were too low for adults to even notice or want to interact with. And he took lots of record of how kids interacted with these computers. And his research is very robust and lengthy, and there's a lot to it. (laughs) So I'm just generalizing now when I say one of the things, one of the many things he discovered is that we are wired to learn even if we're not in a school with teachers, that learning happens when there's opportunity. And learning happens when there's interest. And a huge failure of modern education is that we forget how imperative it is to cultivate interest. That learning actually degrades in the absence of internal motivation. And it's why people can graduate from a school system being kind of dumb, (laughs) you know, because they shut themselves off for eight hours a day because they were bored out of their freaking minds. And so in my experience, going into a space with beginners 99% of my job is is creating interest, yes, but also um, creating something that they can't get on their own because they can get interest on their own. And in a world where we now realize through research, through the the hole in the wall experiments being one of them, that teachers' value isn't in sharing technical craft. It's in energy. And I know that that word is a pejorative for some people. Like for some people, it's like, oh, it conjures up all of these like hippy dippy ideas. And if that's the case, I I guess I'm kind of shrugging my shoulders about it because I can't think of a better word at this point. To me, energy is the best word to describe what a teacher's value is. When I'm in front of beginners, My number one goal is to make people feel safe to take lots of risks because trying to learn something new is scary for everyone, even courageous people, even brave people, even people excited to learn the thing. It's still really scary because inevitably you are going to fail a ton and no one likes to fail. And, and so a teacher's job is to create a safe container for that failure. And, and the ones that can do that are the ones that are called great teachers in my mind. 
Um, And people don't, I think, often view it that way. There's lots of other reasons that I think people might identify my teaching as good. And I'm sure that they would be correct. And I'm sure that there's also ways that my teaching has really sucked. (laughs) And nobody's like perfect um, at anything. But... I have gotten tremendously positive feedback about my teaching and I don't know if most people would identify this trait as why they are interested in my classes or why they like my classes, but I think a huge part of why my classes have value for people is that they just feel safe. I talk about this a little bit in the Lightning Before Thunder episode. I want to say it was episode 10. You can go back and listen to the story of my old spinning instructor, Thomas. Thomas's classes were always packed and they were, and they they would fill up way before his class even started. People were constantly coming in and there would be no more bikes left. And people, I remember one day some, some cyclists and I were chatting about it and we were just saying, what is it that Thomas does? Like he doesn't do anything different seemingly than, than any other spinning instructor. He talks the same, he has the same type of music. He, and after some reflection, I realized it was because there was this feeling when I was in Thomas's class that he was just rocking us on. And he didn't do it with words. He just, there was an energy of, you got this, we're doing this together. And it felt awesome. People are energetic beings. They're constantly making assessments on value based on how they feel, whether they know it or not. And so for me, most of a teacher's value is how can I make students feel really good so that they attach those positive feelings to this craft because then they will have the motivation to keep learning it on their own they are wired to learn on their own um it was an interesting conversation to have right like what what an interesting thing that i had thought about for a long time but had never until you know last week put into words so, so that happened. <laughs> and I realized that even just saying a safe container feels a little abstract. So I want to, I want to tell a story. I've told this story before, but, um, I think it was just on Instagram stories. I don't know if I've told it on this podcast, if I'm repeating myself, I still think it's important for this particular episode. So bear with me. But this story is from a time when I was an elementary art teacher, when I realized the value of the container. Um, So this was the the first, I mean, I learned so many amazing, (laughs) amazing lessons my first year teaching. Um, And this was my first year. I had gotten some advice from my mentor that one really good introductory lesson for kindergartners coming into formal school for the first time was self-portraits that you know giving kids an opportunity to draw their likeness was an important thing to do their first year in art so one of the very first projects we ever did was self-portraits and it was a blast like the kids were super into it we were talking about you know how to make eyes that were the shapes of footballs instead of dots like you know 
taking their preschool face abilities to the next level. They were really excited about it. They did gorgeous, gorgeous um, uh, images. In fact, I kind of feel like I want to start like posting images connected to these episodes <laughs> so that people can see some of the work I'm talking about. That I, I took photos of them. They were so neat. And there was one student whose self-portrait was wildly different from the rest of the class. His name was Joey and he was his portrait looked like a Joey. He acted like a Joey. And I don't even know <laughs> what constitutes a Joey, but in my mind, he was very much a Joey. He was very sweet. He was kind of like the class clown, but like in a really um, engaging way, not in a, a damaging, I need attention kind of way. He was um, kind of goofy. He was the kid that would wear his hat sideways. And in fact, in this portrait, he had drawn a baseball hat. He was the only kid in the class, in his class, to put a baseball hat on his head going sideways. And then the, the second thing he did that was totally unique was he was one of the only kids to not only have an open smile for his mouth, but he drew in all of the teeth and the tongue. It was awesome. And I, so I had gotten into the habit of um, sitting the kids down as we were completely wrapped on a unit before we started the next one. And I would hold up one at a time the finished works. And we would spend like 20 minutes doing this. And I, I got to be really proud of this because it was so engaging that I had gotten to a point where I could get five-year-olds to sit for 20 minutes and listen <laughs> while each other talked because they were so excited for this activity. And what we would do is I would just briefly hold up each piece and the kids each had an opportunity to share one thing that caught their eye. Um, so I would just call on one person for each piece and every kid would get to hear from the class one thing that their peers were gravitating to in their drawing. It was really fun. And so I get to Joey's artwork. I, I hold it up and the class loves it. And they burst out into laughter, just like, oh my gosh. And I remember, I still remember there was lots of like really positive language um, happening as well. Like, oh my gosh, look at the teeth, look at the hat, so cool, all the things. And so everyone settles down. I call on someone, they share their thing, and I turn to look to Joey, and I see that he has this ridiculously uncomfortable look on his face. He's, and I realize, oh, he's not enjoying this at all. And I'm trying, I'm debating, like, you know, should I speak up? Should I just leave it until after this activity is over? And before I get a chance to kind of decide, he bursts into tears. And the class did something that forever shaped my approach with kids. Um, this particular class, their teacher, their, their classroom teacher, was trained in this management behavioral sort of training that teachers can get called love and logic. In fact, I want to say I took some training in this while I was in this particular school because the whole school worked in love and logic. And 
Love and logic is beautiful. I I came to find over the course of my time for anyone that's ever done it or, or is interested in doing it, that love and logic works really well with really little kids. (laughs) And then as kids get older, less well, (laughs) but the thing that's really beautiful about love and logic is that it's all about empathy even in the face of really bad behavior. Little kids don't misbehave because they're trying to cause a problem. They're misbehaving because they're struggling, they need help, or they just don't have enough information to know that they're causing a problem. That, that you know as adults we get so used to assuming that talking o- like talking over someone that's considered so rude it's so obvious to us but when you're 4 it's not obvious <laughs> so yelling at a 4 year old for talking over another kid creates a lot of shame because they literally were just excited they were happy and then you slam on them and so love and logic was this fascinating training that would give you tools to handle these types of instances with lots of empathy. And it also gave teachers tools to share with their students on how to be empathetic with their peers when their peers were angry, when their peers were crying. And so immediately, so this classroom teacher had clearly done a lot of work with these little five-year-olds already because the minute Joey started to cry, the entire class got quiet and they gave him, I, I would say their energy, honestly, or you could say their attention. And it wasn't invasive. It was very gentle and very respectful. And I remember a couple of the girls like nearby him, like gently were like patting him on the shoulder just to see. And it was, it was tentative, right? Like, does he like this? Because if he doesn't, I'm going to stop, you know? And... I remember he just melted into the one little girl, like just, oh my God, he was, he was choking. He was sobbing. He was very upset. So I send the kids back to their seats and, um, I take him over to my desk and we're talking and I say, Hey dude, what's going on? You know? And the reason he was crying was because when the kids laughed, that he thought they were laughing at his work instead of with him. And immediately the whole class like rallies and they're like, Joey, we love it. We're not laughing at you. We are laughing because it makes us happy. And immediately, immediately he can, he can feel that they're not BSing him like five-year-olds have amazing BS radar or barometers way more than adults in my opinion and he starts to smile and he, he wipes his eyes the kids are taking an active role in supporting him he goes back to his seat everything's fine and I realized through this experience that th- that making stuff and putting it in front of people is scary even when you're five <laughs> Um, that there's this idea that kids, you know, make without fear when they're young. And that is true to, to much more extent than adults, but there's still a lot of vulnerability. And these little five-year-olds showed me the power of creating a safe container for people to make stuff and also to have honest feelings about stuff that that's what Joey needed. 
right? Like more than learning how to make football shaped eyes and learning how to create ears in the right position and make and fill the whole space and take his time more than that stuff. What he really needed was when it was time to share his work, he needed it to be safe to do it. That that's what's more important because eventually everyone learns how to be good at things they're interested in. They, they will practice what they're interested in naturally. That the job of the class, the job of the teacher is to create a safe container. Okay, so <laughs> what does this have to do with artists in crisis? <laughs> The reason I shared those two stories is because I wanted to make a case for this idea. And that is, we're not here to make better stuff. And this piggybacks a little bit off of episode 15. um, Because I talked about this idea in the last episode too, just in a different context. We're not here to make better stuff. We're not here to make better crafted anything anything I mean I could go down the list like um, anyone that makes anything whether it's urban design graphic design theater science medicine law I mean we we're all creators and we're all artistic in our chosen fields artistry is a way of approaching anything and in that regard, we all are artists. We all, we all are. Um, I don't, when I say that, I don't mean all, we're all artists in terms of professional artists. That would be silly. We're not all professional artists, but all of us bring artistry into our day-to-day lives on and off and some more than others, but all of us do it. And you can see it in the most mundane activities. You can see it in a mother putting barrettes in her kid's hair. And you can see it being just sort of like a whatever chore for some mothers like honestly if I had kids and I and they had long hair and I was putting it up it would be a chore for me I don't (laughs) I don't view that but for some for some parents let, let me not just be specific to mothers but to some parents doing their kids hair becomes an art, a way to express themselves artistically and and when i and i i know that sounds dramatic but i don't mean it in so far as you know i'm going to take a picture and put it on instagram as this artistic hairdo it's just the process of slowly putting energy and enjoyment into the moment of that thing artistry is being present and artful in our attention to something and I'd like to suggest that the stuff that we make has been the goal for previous generations for however long of human history right? Making better cities, making better economics, making better technologies, making better fashion, making better art. It's just, we're constantly, we've been obsessed with improving upon what we make technically and, and the stuff of our world. And if you look 
at the world from that lens. If, if for the people that really still view their purpose here on the planet in this bag of bones in our, in our bodies, if we view our purpose as making better things in the world, then from that lens, artistry during times of crisis is actually less relevant. Let me just put that out there. If the point is to create peace right now here, if the goal is to heal the pandemic right now here, painting is less relevant. It is. Like there's no there's no argument there. But if the goal is something else, artistry is massively important. And what I'd like to suggest is more important than this stuff that we're making right now is that we are growing as humans. And I I don't mean biologically. We all are growing biologically, whether <laughs> whether we want to or not. It's it's natural. People age without trying. There's no way to avoid it. But growing in our minds and hearts is optional. That's something we know. There's plenty of people that are little children that are ridiculously wise, and there's people that are on their deathbed that are still, you know scared and terrified little three-year-olds in their hearts and minds you know that biological age is only one representation of age that there's lots of full-grown adults walking around the planet right now still five-year-olds inside (laughs) that and I, I really learned this when I was a school teacher and a server at the same time um when I When I lived in Ohio, there was a period of two years right before I moved to Austin where I was really trying to save money. And so I would, two two nights a week, I would work teaching during the day and serving at night. It was awful and only possible when you're 26 (laughs) years old. But I would go from working with these little kids to serving adults in in P.F. Chang's actually was where I was a server. And I began to notice that a lot of adults are really, really act very similarly to to five and six and seven-year-olds. And part of the reason is that there's a lot of things, a lot of trauma that happens to people when they're five, six, and seven that actually never gets healed. And they carry around wounded five and six and seven-year-old pieces inside themselves. And they act from that place. And when you have unhealed crap from your childhood, you will make unhealed crap in the world. And this is something I think artists really understand well, you know, that whatever we make is this very organic extension of wherever we're at. (laughs) Like, I remember an artist friend of mine saying, I just don't have it in me anymore to make dark art. She goes, I know there's a huge place for that, for art that's gritty and angry and dark and shadowy. She said, but I've just seen enough of that in my young life. I don't want to create any more of that in my adulthood. And, And her style was very colorful and whimsical and childlike. And 
to me, when I remember when she said that, I thought, oh, this is, this is, but that's because you've moved into that place in your mind, right? Wherever we're at in our mind becomes the, the fuel for whatever we make, not just our art, but our families, our, our professions, our personal lives, our friend relationships, everything is a creative extension of, of our internal worlds. I have actually shared this before, but, um, my work was really dark in my twenties. Like if you look at some of the drawings and paintings I did, they were all in black and white. They were very gritty. I wouldn't say they were disturbing, but they were dark. And it's cause I was dark. I was really, really struggling. I my health was terrible. I was working way too much. I was very, very frustrated with a school system that I perceived to be really destructive for little children in some ways. And also really torn because of the ways that school systems were so beautiful and helpful to children. I was going through a lot and my art was 100% a reflection of that. And it is not a coincidence that when I moved to Austin, I really discarded that style and moved into a whimsical, colorful, doodly style that really fit with the new place that I had grown into. And I, I want to say that growth in this way is not inevitable. That growth in this way is always optional and it, and it's often rare because it's so hard. (laughs) Um, Growing through the ways, you know, and I've said, I've said this before in past episodes, but we're not here because (laughs) we are weak as a human race. That's a really common narrative right? Like we all, we hear that all the time. We hear humans as a race being regarded as very flawed and weak. And that's why we've trashed the planet and why there's tons of war. I have, you know, especially from teaching little kids, I've really started to view it in a flipped way that we're here because we've been way too hard and way too tough, and we've crammed down all of our squishy, all of our hurt, all of our pain, (laughs) that's, that's the place that collectively we've been creating from forever, forever. And it's been interesting for me, especially on social media, to listen to a lot of the stories and a lot of the narratives about how we need to create better. We need to do better. Um, what I hear when I hear those things is like what it sounds like to me is like if I were in front of a class of five-year-olds, it, it sounds like me saying to them, you need to do better algebra. Get it together. <laughs> That's what I hear when I hear a lot of calls for action in the culture at the moment, we're asking five-year-olds to do algebra and we're, and it's, it's not possible. The goal isn't what we make. 
right now because what we need to make is algebra and we're not old enough yet. (laughs) What we need to do is grow and not biologically grow. We need to internally grow. What does this have to do with artists? Um, I think this has a lot to do with artists. This kind of growing is what artists are here for. Artists, in my experience, are arguably almost always at the front lines of cultural growing pains, cultural growing curves, if you will. If you want to see the like farthest point that a culture has grown look to its artists because artists will be telling you before the rest has caught up what's coming (laughs) you know um an example that i think a lot of people are familiar with is van gogh van gogh was mocked as a painter his style was considered childish and crude and lacking in technical ability honestly because it was so painterly you know the the majority of artists in his day were still representing things in highly realistic ways and his was very impressionistic he's he was one of the people that started that post-impressionistic movement um other impressionists before him like monet also were mocked because that style was before its time we, I mean, we've, I think we've all heard that phrase before, you know, oh, it's that person is just before their, their time, which is a kind of unfortunate way of saying the collective can't appreciate them yet <laughs> because their ideas are too hard for most people to wrap their heads around at this point. And a lot of artists fall into that camp. A lot of creative people, a lot of creative geniuses fall into that camp of being very misunderstood. But I don't even mean to suggest that that artists have to be like Van Gogh or misunderstood to be important to this type of thing. I think all artists generally as a group of people, and, and when I say artists to be clear, and I I feel like I often am not clear enough when I tell these stories (laughs) in reminding people that when I say artists, I'm not talking about professional artists. I'm not, I'm not discluding them either, that professional artists are absolutely included in this, but that I'm talking about people that make things from an artistic lens, whether it's for money or not, whether it's visual art or not, whether it's musical arts or not, whether it's theater arts or not. Um, Artistry is something that can be brought to anything. I've talked about how watching my dad repair his old vintage motorcycle was like watching an artist. Watching teachers teach children to be empathetic when they're five, that's artistry, right? watching my principal when I was a teacher, watching her, watching her create management systems for kids that were very destructive while also, and, and, and creating management systems for destructive kids that showed kids that what they were doing was 
absolutely unacceptable, never to be tolerated, while also showing kids that they were ridiculously loved and welcome in the school community, that's artistry. Artistry is nuance and attention and presence to what one is making and injecting lots of love into what someone is making. Um, there's a lot more to it that I, I suppose I could geek out on right now, but I, but I won't. Really, artistry is something that can be a quality of many, many things. And so when I call people artists, I'm talking about that, from that definition. And I, I want to say, you know, because my artwork is not pushing trends, like I'm not a Van Gogh. People really digest my work quite easily. You know, my work is pretty, pretty straightforward. It's iconography of hearts and rainbows and swirls, <laughs> bright colors, black outline. Pretty I, I often I do it digitally, which makes which interjects an even an even simpler element into it because I can edit everything digitally. That's you know, that's pretty straightforward. But the ways that I push the envelope of ideas through my art, my creative work is through this podcast, right? Like sharing these stories is how is my outlet for trying to be different, trying to push on the edges of something. And I believe that every artist pushes on the edges of things, even if it's not in their work, that, that artists are just wired to push the edges of the cultural growth. I love that about artists. I feel like it's why artists are crucial in times of crisis, because when you look at artists as a whole, what they're saying, what they're writing about, what they're making, the interactions they're having on social media, is a fascinating barometer for the edges of our cultural growing curve, <laughs> if you will. That it's not fa- that where we're going is there. <laughs> it's in the fringes where the quietest, hippy dippiest voices are right? It's not where the really loud majority is at the moment. Um, It's not to discount the loud majority. The loud majority is getting attention and that's their function. And I'm so grateful for the people that are bringing so much energy to this movement. And that's not where we're going. Yelling at five-year-olds to do algebra isn't going to cut it. (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of people who are doing the best that they can and the best that they can is destructive, right? I, I, I I think that's hard. It's like a radical and hard idea. Um, but it's an idea that I think is really important at the moment. And I talked a little bit about it in the last episode, right? That, what people are making might be the absolute best that they can make. And asking a five-year-old to make algebra isn't our prerogative as a society anymore. We're here to grow so that we can just naturally create better stuff 
from that place. For me, this is one of the biggest shifts in perspective that I'd like to see happen in my lifetime is for people to start to say, oh, I don't need to make better shit. I need to grow. <laughs> um, and I, I'm sure it, it can feel a little preachy. Like I, I've been kind of like trumpeting this idea and maybe it can sound like I'm saying that from a place of having it all figured out. And that's 100% not true. <laughs> I, but, I, but I am saying it from a place of having started to really do it. That work is work I've been doing for like 10 years now. Um, I, I remember when I first went to my counselor in 2017, having a total physical breakdown from working too much. I thought she was going to give me advice on work-life balance and how could I have it. And within one, the first hour session, we were talking about my childhood and I was bawling like a baby because guess what? (laughs) Everything I was making in my work and in my business was an extension of everything up until that point in my life. And a lot of the stuff that had happened in my early years was really painful. And that's everybody. (laughs) That's everybody. There's not a single person listening to this that isn't creating from a place of pain. If you're a human, you have pain and it is coming through you into your art and into your life and into your relationships. And to the extent that you're able to work through that and grow through that, that's when we start creating new stuff. And I still fuck it up, y'all, like so bad. Like people that know me will tell you, I, I used to just, oh, I would like spiral into these crazy spirals of like, I'm useless and blah, blah, blah. I was crazy. Like I, (laughs) and I don't do that anymore. I don't even get to a place close to doing that anymore. Um, but it was a lot of work and it had nothing to do with what I was making. I didn't double down harder on my operations and my business. I didn't like work harder on my craft and my technical skill. No, I was like talking about my childhood with like a perfect stranger in an office once a week. <laughs> and, and I'm not suggesting that that's what anyone here has to do. It's a very privileged thing to be able to go to a counselor, first of all. Um, but acknowledging that that's the place to start is massive. Because then baby steps towards that can start happening for everybody, no matter what place they're at in their life, no matter what resources they have in their life. Our goal here is to grow, not to work on the stuff we make. And that's why artists matter in times of crisis, because artists are on the front lines of how far we've grown. And if you find the quietest, hippiest, weirdest artists saying stuff that no one's no one else is saying but like really resonates in your core, that's where we're going. Artists are the the compass. <laughs> They're they give us a place to aim the bow and arrow, <laughs> you know? 
And to me, that's why secret sauce is huge because there's so many wildly fascinating, interesting people that can be the compass, but they're so seduced into making stuff like the masses so they can sell. And there's nothing wrong with that. I freaking sell. I sell, <laughs> I sell very commercial things. <laughs> like 100% pay my bills with stickers and coloring books and candles and all the things. Um, that's not. That's not my... Um, artistic mission anymore. Secret sauce is my mission. Teaching is my mission. And selling the stickers supports that. So there's nothing wrong with selling work. There's nothing wrong with wanting to make stuff that people buy. But what is it that we're going to make that really pushes the stories and the narratives forward that really helps people grow? I'm fascinated with that idea. And I think artists of all kinds have the ability to do that. And that's why their work matters so much. And I know it can be a little bit of a tricky thing. Like I'm sure there's some artists that are like, yeah, Burley, but I paint landscapes. And what does that even matter right now? You're right. The landscapes might not matter. Like the physical painting of landscapes might if we're if we're like holding it up next to a doctor in an ER during a global pandemic, maybe that is maybe there's a very difficult case to be made there when it comes to relevancy. But you are as an artist are part of pushing the culture forward, even if you're a landscape painter. I believe that the ideas that you think about the energy that you put into the landscape, it matters. And I, I'd i like to suggest it matters in ways that we can't even wrap our heads around yet. Um, yeah. It's an imperfect argument, I realize. But hopefully some food for thought. You know? If you look at the creative trajectory of our art forms, it's undeniable that we as a culture and as a global community are waking up to the invisible stuff that really matters in our experience. You know, like Star Star Wars was huge. The force, the force that, that, that was like massive, right? No one had done a movie about invisible forces tapping into them for personal and collective power. That was revolutionary and it's why that franchise took off. And Star Wars ushered in all kinds of movies about about wielding power in a way that is disconnected from like image, personal fame, wealth, Right, Doctor Strange, a uh, super interesting movie about a, a wildly fast, wildly talented surgeon who completely loses his ability to make stuff in the world because his hands are destroyed, <laughs> and he learns instead how to wield invisible forces. That that's like kind of a wonky idea to think about, but it's 
kind of on the forefront of where we're going. We're traveling in that direction. We're starting to learn as a culture about the power that we have to affect the world with energy. I think that's so cool. And a lot of our art forms are showing the way. So, you know, movies is just one of them, but it's, it's everywhere. It's in the influx of interest in acupuncture. It's in the it's in the, the trajectory of the art world going into abstraction. You know, like you can go to Houston and sit in the Rothko Chapel in front of black canvases, right? What's the point of that? Well, Rothko wasn't interested in painting something pretty for your eyes. He wanted you to sit surrounded by nothingness and face yourself, that's awesome. <laughs> and it was really revolutionary when he did it. Like a lot of people would look at his field paintings and say, I could do that. That's not, that wasn't his, that wasn't what he was bringing to the table, right? Art isn't always about the technical thing that we're making. It might very well be about the way that people grow when they interact with your stuff. And Rothko was saying, I want people to sit surrounded by my field paintings and face themselves and in so doing grow a little bit. That's beautiful. That's why art matters in crisis. Because we are not here to make better stuff. We are here to grow and then better stuff's just going to happen. <laughs> That's how it works. And, I, and, and finally, I'd like to wrap this up by saying it's to give permission to people listening to this that you can politely let go of some of those messages yelling at you to do stuff right now yelling at you to be better yelling at you to do better right that's that's all well and good and maybe that does help some people i as a teacher i don't i'm not totally convinced it helps anyone but i could very well be wrong this is like this whole episode is a lot of just thoughts I've had, you know, but I'd like to suggest that you can let go of the pressure to make algebra if you're five. (laughs) I'd also like to suggest letting go of pressure to be, to, to not be five. Like we're all just where we're at. I don't, um, I think we're all just where we're at and collectively when we can figure out a way to honor the fact that some of us are like baby baby babies just like baby baby babies and full-grown bodies just doing all kinds of damage baby baby babies in leadership positions I know you know I'm talking about there's plenty of them (laughs) and that those people that are just so wildly destructive in the ways that they interact with the world to suggest that they're doing the best that they can is radical. But I think that it's an apt suggestion. And that when we get to that place of understanding that, we'll be able to move collectively as a community better. First of all, we'll stop electing the babies to office. Like, <laughs> you know? I remember Caesar Milan. This is, okay, I'm really going to wrap this up soon. This is a long episode, but... 
I remember Caesar Milan posted a video not too long ago. I love him. He's the dog whisperer. He does these fascinating videos about dog training, but he also has come out in recent years as saying he's really more interested in humans, right? Because when humans have it figured out, the dogs are going to be fine. And and it's another way of saying when humans have it figured out, what we make is going to be fine. The world is going to be fine. That the focus isn't out there on what we're making. The focus is in our inner worlds. And so that's why when he's training people, right? Because he says, I'm not training dogs, I'm training humans. And while I'm tra- and when he's training humans, he's constantly asking them to look at their inner lives. What assumptions do you have? What trauma do you have that is causing you to enable this dog's behavior in X, Y, and Z ways? And I remember he posted something recently that said, humans are the only species on earth that follows unstable leaders. And I was like, yeah. And he didn't say this outright, but what he was getting at was this, that the reason we follow unstable leaders is because we still don't really understand energy. (laughs) We're really we're really still comfortable with image. And for a lot of people, image is what they follow. And so we have to grow past that. And artists are really, I think, very comfortable with energy, whether they would call it that or not. Because I know there's a ton of artists that probably would balk at using the word energy. But, but I think a lot of creative people are very comfortable with this idea of following energy. How does that person make me feel it's like such a distrust of feelings um and it's it's a bummer right because i think that we're here in this place not because we listen to our feelings too much i I think we haven't gotten into our feelings nearly enough and so when the feelings do come out they're like super destructive and shitty but if we keep getting into our feelings and growing It is going to get so much better. And I know that the episodes on this podcast have started to get really esoteric and maybe kind of macro, but this is an idea that I have been perseverating on because the internet and the world right now is full of lots of noise about doing better and making better. And that can be really diminishing for artists because they're like, well, how in the world does my crafts matter? (laughs) Like, how in the world do my, you know, hand-stitched pillows matter? Whatever it is that you're making, you know? Um, Anyway, I hope this was food for thought. And um, and next week's going to be much more lighthearted. You'll see Jordan is going to be a breath of fresh air after the deep dive on this one, I think. (laughs) I love y'all. Peace.